0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry.
2: Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canadaland supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canadaland shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners.
0: Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This
1: episode of OPPO is brought to you by Rotman's MBA Essentials Online, your bridge to business. Gain essential business skills that will last a lifetime in this three-week evening intensive. This real-time virtual program starts August 10th, so start your application today. Visit uoft.me slash CanadaLand to learn more. That's uoft.me slash CanadaLand.
0: This episode of OPPO is brought to you by Wealth Bar. Whether you've got $1,000 or a million, Wealth Bar makes accessing professionally managed investments and in financial advice ridiculously easy. Start investing with an advisor at your fingertips through Wealth Bar's top-rated app. Sign up online in minutes at wealthbar.com slash CanadaLand and you'll get a $100 fee credit.
1: From CanadaLand, this is OPPO.
0: I'm Jen Gerson in Calgary. And I'm Sandy Garasino in Vancouver. How are things going over there in Vancouver, Sandy Garasino? I'm looking out the window. It
1: is sunny, so that is good. It's July and it's not raining in Vancouver, so it is a good day.
0: And it's raining all the time here in Calgary. And let me tell you, my potatoes are monstrous. They are going to feed me through a hard winter. I'm really looking forward to it. Jen Gerson's food security notes, everybody. There you go. (laughs) start collectively talking about reopening the country the thing that's been top of mind for me for very obvious reasons is schools what the hell are we going to do about sending the children out of our goddamn houses well
1: i think uh women across the country would just be happy to send the children out of their houses
0: under any circumstances and just let let them forage (laughs) Women across the country, hear my call. I am the beacon and avatar of your anger and frustration. Because today we're going to have Dr. Sylvia Fuller to join us on the show to chat about what the hell all of this is doing to women and women's unemployment.
1: Before we start strategizing school reopening, we need to check in on a couple of stories that have been occupying our attention. Well, maybe one big story. Jen,
0: What have we been thinking about? We have been thinking about many things, Sandy. We have had lots of things to think about and talk about and discuss. Haven't we? And in case you don't know what we're cryptically referring to, that is, of course, the latest Just to do Ethics scandal. This one involving the WE charity or the WE not-for-profit or whatever division of WE has managed to get itself in the headlines lately.
1: I mean, today we're, we're getting the news that Justin Trudeau has apologized and we're going to have another Justin Trudeau apology tour. This guy is Masterful. turning into the he's the Mark
0: Zuckerberg of Canadian politics. It's just I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. So let's sort of recap here. We what is this scandal exactly and why is it important? Essentially, if you don't know or don't have kids, you may be unaware that there is a charity called We and we does a couple of things a combination of voluntourism so it gets you know well-intentioned high-minded uh, high schoolers to go to places like Kenya to build schools and burnish their uh their resumes but it also holds you know in-school events like wee days which are giant sort of moderately creepy but well-intentioned uh conventions in which you know kids from around the country will go to a giant concert hall and they'll hear speakers and get all jazzed up and revved up and inspired to go you know, help the developing world. Also, I mean, they do fundraisers uh, in schools and outside of schools. So, I mean, it's very much a, a well-known charity, particularly for young people. And it's Craig and Mark Kielberger. That's the... Craig and Mark Kielberger, uh, who started this thing when they were kids. And now it's really infiltrated a lot of Canadian schools. If you are a young person, I'm told, you know, you really can't escape We or any of its franchises. And also there's been kind of like a, a slightly odd reticence to report critically on Wii for many, many years until, you know, Candleland started to dig into it uh, a couple years ago and got a lot of flack for it as well. So there's some there's some like slightly eye rolling things about this charity. You know, my inner cynic gets a little bit um, skeptical about anything that's too well intentioned. But, you know, you can't you have to forgive me for that because I'm a journalist. But anyway, a couple of weeks ago, the government of Canada, in the midst of trying to uh, finagle its its COVID relief, gave we the ability to manage nine hundred and twelve million dollars to try and help give student volunteers you know student volunteer jobs and we was going to take i think about a 20 million dollar cut of that amount of money to manage these programs. And this all of a sudden really shifted the dynamic because all of a sudden they went from just a a really well-intentioned charity that was in a lot of schools and then partnered with a lot of media organizations to being an organization that had been basically tasked with managing almost a billion dollars of taxpayer Funding And this, of course, made them a subject of legitimate media scrutiny um, for really its first time in its history. And it didn't hold up particularly well to that scrutiny, particularly when we found out that it was a sole source contract. And also, uh, it later came out that we had paid a lot of the members of Justin Trudeau's family to give speeches at We Day events, even though other speakers at We Day events had not been paid. So this obviously raises very obvious, uh, conflict of interest issues and ethics issues, especially as more reportings come out that's showing, showing that like the connections between senior members um, of the Liberal Party and senior members of the Prime Minister sort of inner circle had this very tight relationship with the we organizations, plural.
1: To me, there are there are really two issues. Um, the one being the conflict of interest and, and both Justin Trudeau through his, as partic- in particular, his mother, but also his brother and to a very small degree, uh, I believe Sophie was involved in accepting fees. But I think that the family has been engaged with the charity, there's the perception of conflict and also Bill Murno the um, Minister of Finance, who has family relationships with the charity. All of these should have rung alarm bells. From my perspective, having been involved in the charitable sector, knowing the charitable sector, uh, I would say, very well, and governance practices, I'm actually very concerned by the level of governance um, that this organization exhibits. Uh, we Charity has been um, rated by Charity Intelligence Canada as having only... A fair rating in terms of impact rating, impact in terms of its program delivery. And that's the second lowest on there's. High, good, average, fair, and low. And they've been rated only fair. So let's call that what it is. That's a bad rating as far as I'm concerned. And the other thing that concerns me is when I look at the uh, board of directors, the charitable structure is very hard to discern because it appears that there are multiple directors in multiple countries, but most of their funding and most of their program delivery is in Canada. They have committed $32.6 million in the last fiscal year on Canadian programs, including in-kind donations and volunteer time. And now they're meant to deliver almost a billion dollars in government funding.
0: That got got cancelled. That's been been cancelled.
1: But what I'm saying is the due diligence here is not there. The board governance, the oversight, there are no Canadian lawyers, no Canadian chartered accountants. The board members are not, in my opinion, the Canadian board members are not sufficiently arm's length in order to be able to exercise true oversight of this organization. Um, This should have raised flags. And the thing that concerns me, I guess, about the Prime Minister's involvement here and, and the fact that he didn't recuse, nor did Bill Morneau recuse themselves, Everything about how this contract was made is concerning. Now, I don't actually think that the prime minister, and I think this is why a lot of voters and a lot of Canadians might be prepared to look the other way. This is a little bit like the Aga Khan thing, where I think a lot of people might think, well, there isn't, you know, um nefarious intent. But I think we're long past. We're into a second government for the Trudeau government. And I think we're really past the days where we're just going to give passes to this kind of thing. I'm very concerned about the governance side of this organization.
0: To me, this is just like a very typical Justin Trudeau scandal. Like like this has got all the hallmarks of the previous scandals, up to and including the sort of celebrity elbow rubbing, the uh, image burnishing connections the just being fast and loosed around the rules of conflict of interest and, and and where your interests begin and and the government's interest end sort of thing. To me, this is all of a piece of a kind of habit that this government seems to have. I think everyone agrees.
1: Even the prime minister agrees. Shouldn't have been done. But you know what? Let's not be doing this again Ever. Please.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But of course, they're going to do this again, because like nobody ever actually punishes them in a meaningful way. So they just keep on every time that they get into one of these scandals, they kind of scrape their way out of it. The voters more or less forgive them. And then they we move on. Right. And then they do the next thing. and The next thing is just slightly worse. So I don't know. I don't have a lot of optimism that this will be the, the last ethics scandal we see from Justin Trudeau at this point, to be blunt. This episode of OPPO is brought to you by Rotman's MBA Essentials Online, your bridge to business. There's no better time than now to brush up on your resume and learn new skills that can help you get a promotion, advance your career, or become a more valuable member of the team.
1: Develop your business acumen. Learn how to work collaboratively across departments and divisions and network with a cohort of early emerging leaders like yourself with Rothman's MBA Essentials Online. Your bridge to business.
0: University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management has designed a real-time virtual program to respect both the current challenges of working from home while maintaining and building connections with a class of your peers across different industries and organizations. Gain new skills, deep insights, and a powerful network over nine virtual sessions with expert faculty who've worked with Fortune 500 companies. Just visit uoft.me slash CanadaLand. Once again, visit uoft.me CanadaLand to learn more.
1: This episode of OPPO is brought to you by Wealthbar. Whether you've got a thousand dollars or a million, Wealthbar makes accessing professionally managed investments and financial advice ridiculously easy. The markets are unpredictable and you're bound to have questions. Should you be buying or selling? When will things recover? How do you know you've got the right investments for your goals? You've got questions that Google can't answer. You don't have to go it alone. With Wealthbar, you get a professional on your side. When you sign up with WealthBar, they'll pair you with a professionally managed portfolio that's tailored to your financial goals. And when you have questions, their financial advisors are available through the app or by phone to help you make informed decisions, so you don't have to guess when it comes to your future. Start investing with an advisor at your fingertips through WealthBar's top-rated app. Sign up online in minutes at wealthbar.com/canadaland and you'll get a $100 fee credit.
2: Yes, yes, ma-
0: So today we're going to be talking about a really important topic that has everybody on Twitter all abuzz, especially women with children. And yet, for some reason, nobody outside of the Twitter sphere or the social media sphere seems to be taking it all that seriously. And that is, what the hell are we going to do about sending the kids back to school in the midst of COVID in September? Because let me tell you, those women who have not already had to quit their jobs are very rapidly hitting their crazy points. So just to go over very quickly, in Ontario, kids may only be going back to school for two days a week. Um, That's a possibility that they're seriously considering. That would leave kids at home to learn online and their moms or dads stuck at home with them. In Quebec, it looks like schools will reopen but kids will be segregated into tiny little bubbles to limit contagion. But we'll see how that goes because we know the outbreak's been most intense in Quebec of all the provinces. In British Columbia, elementary classes are going to be limited to about 50% capacity. Alberta still working on its plan and in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and the Atlantic where infections have remained low, it looks like kids will largely be back to school in September, but very strict and new sanitation measures are definitely going to be in place. Today to talk about this, we're joined by Dr. Sylvia Fuller, who's a professor of sociology at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Fuller recently co-authored a study in Canadian public policy, along with Dr. Yue Chion, entitled COVID-19 and the Gender Employment Gap Among Parents of Young Children. Oh boy, that's going to be interesting. Dr. Fuller, thanks so much for joining us on OPPO. And like, I just want to start by asking you, when you hear about what provinces are going to be doing, um, especially come September, what are the first concerns that come to your mind?
2: My concern is what are we gonna be doing with the kids on days when they're not in school, right? So it seems like so far the planning has been just around the school piece and there hasn't been the recognition that schools are also childcare. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And if kids aren't in school full time, somebody's gotta be watching them. Those kids who are elementary school age, too young to be left uh, on their own. And we know from our recent research that we just published in CPP that disproportionately mothers' employment was really taking a hit in those early months of the pandemic as jobs went away, but also as school and daycare and childcare went away. So we saw this really big growth in the employment gap between mothers and fathers in those first months. So what we did was we looked at from the end of February, so really before the pandemic had hit to the end of May. And that was when things were just starting to open, open back up again in the economy, but still no, you know, typically the schools were not open and uh, the daycares weren't really open yet. And we saw this real, among, among parents who had largely been employed before uh, the pandemic hit, we saw this widening gap. So for those with school age kids, uh, it widened by seven percentage points between mothers and fathers. So what happens in practice when you don't have full-time school or school at all, in this case, when you don't have childcare available is that it's mothers more than fathers who are picking up the slack. So what's going to happen to mother's employment if as the pandemic stretches on for a longer period of time, and as you say, parents start to reach their breaking point, if that care isn't available. So I'm really concerned when I see talk about the school's, in isolation from any talk about providing any other kind of care arrangements for parents, because that's going to be a recipe for disaster, both for those, you know, families who are going to be tearing their hair out trying to manage it, and also for the economy as a whole. If you don't have mother's employment uh, bouncing back, that is devastating to the economic recovery.
0: I have to step in here because, you know, I'm, you know, a woman in her 30s and I've got two young kids. So I'm, I'm right <laughs> in the smack dab of the hell right now. Yeah. And I got to be honest with you. I'm so angry about all of this. I'm so intensely, viscerally angry because I see nothing but these provinces putting all this attention on, you know, how do we safely reopen restaurants and fucking bars? <laughs> and yet what from what I can see is they're treating me and my cohort like we are a totally expendable lost generation. I can't even wrap my head around just how bad things are going to be, especially if things don't reopen in September, because over Twitter, I was talking to uh, Lauren Dobson Hughes, and she was suggesting that, you know, if schools don't reopen in September, we could be returning to something that looks like the 1930s in terms of, like, gendered employment dynamics. And I actually think she's probably right, because, you know, as your paper very credibly points out, you know, the first women to get hit hardest from this pandemic were poor women, uh, uh, less educated women, women working in the service sector. They got hit Hard and fast, but what I think is going to start to happen here as we this wears on and on and on is that women who are sort of in my cohort, um, women who have more education, who have the luxury of being able to work from home, we're hitting our limit. And if you tell us yeah. that like schools aren't reopening in September, you're going to see us start to exit the workforce en masse. And like the long term implications and the concerns that I have with that is that we are then communicating to all of our employers that female workers are expendable. And when shit hits the fan, women can essentially be just shut off back home. We're not actually that important to the economy. And that's what I'm hearing from my governments at every level.
2: Yeah. And it's and it's just patently untrue, right? Like mothers have a very high rate of labor force participation in Canada and really across the industrialized world these days, although Canada is at the high end uh, even there. So mothers' employment is central to the economy. You can't just... Send mothers back to (laughs) mothers back to the home and not have it impact the economy as a whole, let alone all the issues for the individual, you know, the individual women and gender inequality and all those kinds of points. And I think you make a really good point in looking ahead to what the impact will be for more educated mothers as well. We certainly saw that in the short term. And again, we're really just going, you know, we only had data to the end of May when we, when we did this paper. So these are the first few months of the pandemic. And it was those less educated mothers that had the biggest hit. So if you had school age kids, so we're not talking little kids, because again, the impact was biggest for the elementary school age kids, and you had a high school education or less, the gender gap among that group grew more than 10 times to 17 percentage points. That's huge. And a lot of that has to do with the kinds of jobs, right? So if you are, um, you know, a woman with that level of education, you're more likely to be working in a restaurant, you're more likely to be working in retail and like a those jobs went away, right. But also, even as they open up, you know, you can't bring your kid with you. Right? You can't work from home in those jobs. So you really are, you know, cut in a very hard place. For women with more education, there's more of a possibility of, you know, having some flexibility, maybe doing, you know, maybe working from home for that. But you still, you know, anybody who's had kids, especially little kids, right, knows that you can't just like leave children unattended all day while you do your job uninterrupted and be able to work effectively in that way. So what we see, of course, anecdotally, I mean, I don't have the direct data on this is uh, people just burning the candle at both ends, right? So- Yes, you may be able to.
0: Find me a working mother who's not working basically until midnight, three o'clock. Exactly. Every morning to get her work done.
2: Getting up super early, working super late. So having that flexibility enables you to do it, but you're right, thinking about is that sustainable in the longer term? Right. You think you can sort of manage it for a few months, but as those months stretch out and as you know, the, you don't know when there's no end in sight, right. That it starts to just, it starts to feel really overwhelming and be overwhelming. And the other point that you raised that I think is really important is thinking about like, how do employers respond to this? Right. So a lot of the, talk about it has been like the choices that families are making or the choices that mothers are making, but employers make choices too, right? (laughs) And so as they're thinking about, okay, well, you know, this person is like, maybe they're not available for the meetings when I want them to be available, or maybe, you know, they can't come into the shifts when I want them to schedule the shifts, or they, you know, want to have a longer, a longer leave. And, You know, can I just hire someone temporarily or is it worth trying to bring this person back? I mean, we have had in most but not all provinces, interestingly, amendments to our Employment Standards Act that provide, you know, on paper protections so that, you know, folks should be able to take an unpaid leave uh, if they have caregiving duties during covid but we also know that, you know, employment standards are pretty routinely violated, especially at the bottom of the labor market. So, you know, if we have a situation where it's mothers more than fathers who are taking this and, you know, employers are thinking about, okay, ah, I need to restaff. I need to, you know, hire some people back. Um, do you hire back? the mother, right? Or if you don't know whether the school is going to just close again, and she's not going to be available again, because she's going to do it. So when we have context, we can look at sort of, you know, non pandemic times, and know that, you know, when you have countries, for example, that have like, really long, sort of generous parental leaves that are just taken by mothers. So like really effectively maternal leave, you tend to have worse labor market outcomes for women. In part, the thought is, is that it's sort of encourages employers to discriminate against mothers because it's difficult for them to manage that.
0: Or discriminate against women who are of childbearing age. Are of childbearing age. I could tell you
2: all about. Yes, exactly. Right. So again, you know, the policy response has not been really, from what I can see, really unified. Right. So you have the people working on school without thinking about, okay, is it our responsibility to think about how are we actually going to provide care and supervision for these kids if they're not in school full time? We have the sort of design of these short term income supports through CERB without any thought about, OK, well, you know, maybe we provide that for for people who have child care and responsibilities as well. But. Do we have anything to sort of encourage or incentivize a more equal sharing of that, which which we're starting to do with parental leave in Canada? I mean, Quebec's been doing it for a long time. Other countries have been doing it for a long time, but we're just starting to do that in Canada. And again, we know that does tend to equalize things. But there hasn't been any discussion about that with uh, the policy discussion about how to respond. So for governments who supposedly take gender equity as you know, a guiding principle, and I will say this isn't all governments in our country, but, you know, it's supposed to be something that many say that they are foregrounding. That has been notably absent in the planning around these processes. And it has really been, seemed to be the assumption that somehow families, and when we say families in practice, that tends to mean mothers, are just going to magically figure this out and make sacrifices on their own, rather than having that be actually part of the policy response.
1: Dr. Fuller, have you um, or are there any uh, government bodies that you know that are measuring the economic cost of this inequality in um, employment outcomes for women who are suffering lapses in childcare?
2: So I haven't seen that being done specifically yet. Which isn't to say that it, you know, that it won't be done. I mean, Statistics Canada, as they have been, you know, reporting on the same data that we used in our study, right? I mean, they have been reporting gender differences in job losses and uh, changes in work hours and some of those things. And they have not in the level of detail that we did in our study again, but they did do a little bit of descriptive analysis of differences for parents as well. So it's not totally off the agenda in terms of people who are tracking this. And I think that it, it will be there. The question is whether it's actually going to guide the policy response in time to make things better. And I'm, I'm really concerned that, you know, we are, we are almost halfway through July (laughs) and, you know, like September is coming up like a freight train here and Where is the response and where and why are we having, you know, this was this is just a pet peeve of mine, but like, why are reporters asking policymakers, should parents be planning on school being part time and finding care? Why aren't they asking them, what is the government going to do the question is not should parents be planning?
1: The question should be, what is the government planning? Exactly. And is it not the case? I mean, you've, you've basically been laying out the argument very forcefully here, but, um, women at the lower end of the economic scale, that have less power, have less voice, have really, in many respects, have no voice around the table. I was uh, speaking recently to someone who was part of an industry group that government had convened to, to hear from about, well, what can we be doing to assist your industry? And of course, and this person who was laudably a man made the point that everyone was looking for what kind of government assistance be given to their business to their industry and he was saying child care yeah. child care will help my employees and that will help me and we're not seeing that kind of voice and in particular this just drives the inequality wedge deeper and deeper for those at the at the lower end of the power structure
2: absolutely and inequality along all those dimensions right so gender inequality yeah. among those with less voice uh you know class inequality in terms of who is able to manage this lack of planning better than others. Um, and those are all, also inequality among kids, right? I mean, we, we yes. know that um, if you are having sort of part of the school online at home, you are going to widen no. educational inequalities. I mean, I have a nine-year-old, right? And I, I have a PhD. You would think I would be able to like help with teaching, but you know, I, I teach grown-ups. So I don't teach. I don't. <laughs> None of the I PhDs I know are doing that. <laughs> I don't teach kids. Like I did a terrible job, you know, trying to like help my kids sort of manage, you know, manage his frustration with the online, how the online math thing was organized or, or, this, or, or this or that. And I'll tell you that, you know, we started out thinking like, oh, he could do this on, you know, on his iPad. We ended up buying a laptop. Like, there's class privilege, right? That, you know, the kid's frustrated. He's having a hard time managing this on the iPad. He didn't have his own laptop because he's nine and he didn't need it before then. And, like... So you know, we opened our wallets and we bought and we
1: bought a laptop.
2: Who can afford to do that? Let alone who has the time to help? You know.
1: And consider the language barriers that so many kids are struggling with, or they're dealing yeah. with a household where the parents um, are not comfortable in the English language, and and now they're supposed to, in some ways, be the teachers here or, or offer in instruction and help. All those things. All those things.
0: I just want to step in here and make an observation because I mean I started at the top of the show making this this point and that is these are all things that every woman in our cohort who has kids is talking about and we're all pissed off about it and we're all freaking out about it and yet for some reason that sort of overwhelming concern and panic about what's coming doesn't seem to be translating in the policy field. People don't seem to be getting it. And I think that there's been A lot of very appropriate talk about sort of the inequality dimension of all this and the fact that you know just everything you were just saying uh, women from disadvantaged backgrounds are going to be hit harder by this than women of privileged backgrounds and that's all very true but um, in our attempts to make that moral rhetorical point i don't think that we're quite getting across the fundamental scope of the problem when when I say that I think that if kids don't go back to school in September, that you are relegating an entire generation of women to a kind of lost financial generation, I mean that. But this is what I think people need to hear. It's not just a small cohort of like mm-hmm. waitresses and their kids who are going to get hit by this. This is going to set female equality back by generations if you don't get it right and get it right right now. And like the economic impacts of that are phenomenal, but the broader sociological impacts of that are beyond imagining for me right now. And I am listening to my friends and my cohorts talk about their struggles and what they're going through right now. And I'm fully admitting that my friend and cohort group is a privileged friend and cohort group. But like, I don't think that governments, I think that they're panicking so much just trying to get from day to day, just trying to focus on how to keep people alive right now, that they're not able to pull back and look at the forest for the trees. And the forest that I'm looking at looks like it is about to burn to the ground and and be (laughs) basically decimated into charred grassland. Like, that's what I'm looking at. I don't know how to say this in a way that people will hear it, but... It's half your fucking population. It's every woman with children, everyone. You are fucking us over en masse because you have fundamentally failed to take these broader social effects into consideration. And that's why I'm getting panicked. And that's also why I'm getting really pissed off.
2: I think both the panic and the, and the anger are valid responses and they're not overblown responses to what's happening so far. So when we think about that sort of that class element, Right. And again, I think it's important to think about those shorter and longer term effects, so less advantaged women and you know I was it really we were really only able to look at this along the lines of you know education because we we don't in that publicly available data we don't have data on race, for example, we don't have like some of those other breakdowns that we'd really like to look at. That's where you see the biggest immediate, most dramatic impact, but those are also jobs where they're not great jobs to start with. <laughs> And so the longer term, okay, you you know, you know, lose your job. That's a huge financial impact. It is problematic in all kinds of levels. But the next job that you find may not be all that different from the job that you had before. When you look at the other end of the educational spectrum, women with university degrees, um, and if you knock those women off out of their jobs... That's where, you know, time with the employer, expertise in the area, connections that you've made, time out of the labor force, you know, lost employment, that can have longer run, larger effects for that group because those were pretty good jobs to start with that you're losing. Mm -hmm. And we know, right, we know that when you have folks who are, you know, being laid off in general, that that can have sort of longer term scarring effects, So you don't necessarily get a job just as good as the one you had before, when you go back, into the labor force, particularly if you've had like lots of, you know, lots of experience um, at the time that you get knocked off, you don't necessarily find as good of a job. And we also know this is from research that that I actually did um, with some older data a while back, that if we look at that sort of motherhood wage penalty that we see in the labor market, where mothers earn less than women without kids, and the reverse is true for fathers, by the way, a lot of that is stemming from what happens when mothers go on the labor market and look for new jobs. And what, mm-hmm. what tends to happen is that the new jobs they find are more often than not all else equal with employers who pay worse. And mm-hmm. that's particularly when we are in context where discrimination is sort of easier to get away with. <laughs> right. suggesting that mothers are facing discrimination when they go on the labor market. So you have the pandemic, right? So <laughs> women losing their jobs, so that means they need to find a new employer their mothers so they're you know already faced with these kind of you know concerns of employers that maybe they won't be as reliable maybe they'll have you know like issues with taking care of their kids and so you know maybe maybe we don't necessarily want to hire them for those like most high demand responsible well paid jobs in the first place right And then you have the pandemic where the employer is thinking like, what's going to happen with the schools? They haven't set up alternative care arrangements. We might have a second wave and that is going to increase those incentives to discriminate even more. So it does really have the potential to have, again, those long run impacts, not just on who is employed in the short term, right? But. You know, gender wage gaps going forward, uh, loss of career continuity, um, all those kinds of things. And it is really concerning. And it's really concerning that, as you say, it ha- does not seem to be really a priority in the planning process, right? I mean, and you have to plan this. It takes money. It takes resources. It takes a lot of creative. Yeah. I mean, you can't just like, you can't just manifest. Twice as many teachers in your labor force because your classes are going to be half as small, <laughs> or you know, I have twice as much school space. You need to be thinking creatively about what other spaces are available, how else can we draw people in uh, to, you know, a sort of temporary care labor force to provide safe care for kids uh, who don't have options otherwise, and what spaces can we make that available. I mean, this is all. These are all things that require planning and that require resources. And I'm not seeing either happening or at least not happening to the level that it needs to happen to actually get it done.
1: And Dr. Fuller, I'm wondering as well, what are we going to see not only on economic impact? And of course, there's the important uh, moral and social obligation that we have to, to mm-hmm. see to this and and the, and the sheer political issue, but also delivery of services. I mean, who is the largest employer in look at healthcare and education, yeah. government employment, yeah. and who delivers those services? Women. <laughs> A very, very, very high percentage of women. Um, it, just so much of what we saw as the pandemic broke out, we saw the crucial, crucial importance of all kinds of layers um of economic activity that we didn't even, had been invisible to us um, before. And suddenly, you know, shelf stockers and cashiers were suddenly crucially important. Is anyone measuring the impact of trauma, economic trauma of mothers leaving the workforce or not being able to deliver those services? I think that research is going to roll out as time goes by. <laughs>
2: But we're going to keep looking at it as time goes on. And particularly when we see what happens with schools in September, I mean, it is going to be really important to track this over time and see what those outcomes are. And it's it's not just an academic question, right? I mean, sort of as academics, we find it interesting because we want to see, oh, and, you know, but maybe where all these different countries and all these different provinces doing it in different ways, who's, you know, who's made mitigated those gender impacts better or worse than others. And what can we learn from it? But it's also just that, you know, we need to know what's happening, right? So that we can design more effective policy responses to try and respond to some of those uh, inequalities that have been generated. And of course, you know, the better situation is if we can mitigate them, if we can head them off at the pass in the first place with better policy and with some pressure, right? To say, look, you know, this is a disaster, This is not okay to just, you know, treat this as just as an issue about kids and just as an issue about schools. We need to think about what are the labor force implications? What are the equity implications? How are we going to, you know, we've given the CERB because we recognize the critical importance of providing economic support in the short term. But we also need to think, and that's cost a lot of money, right? But we knew we had to do it. And we knew that it would cost us more in the long run if we didn't support people through it. And this is the same situation. It's going to cost us more. I am confident in the long run in lost economic activity in lost, you know, income taxes from mothers, all those kinds mm-hmm. of things. If we don't invest the time and invest the resources now to try and mitigate some of those worst impacts. We need to be balancing all of these things and thinking about what's the priority, right? So if a priority is both for kids' well-being, for women's economic inequality, for the economic recovery as a whole, that reopening schools full-time in person is really important, then we have to be working backward from that and thinking about, okay, well, what do we need to do in our planning to ensure that we you know, keep things under control so that can happen? And have our plan B. So if we can't do that, if it's not safe because of the levels of virus circulating in the community or, or for whatever reason, what alternatives are we going to provide? How are we going to manage that for, you know, for the kids who are not in school in those days?
0: I just also think that we need to bring this up uh, for people who maybe haven't followed the, the data. But I mean, as we've received more data about COVID and how it spreads and what the risks and effects are, it is increasingly looking like the actual risks to children are minimal and also that children and schools don't appear to be um, amplifying the spread of the disease. I mean, that was one of the big arguments for shutting down schools in the first place. There was a a legitimate fear when we didn't have better information that, you know, if you kept the schools open that they were going to serve as like catalysts for the spread of the disease. And it's looking Mm -hmm. like, albeit with limited information, that that is not the case. It does seem to me that with some reasonable precautions, Uh, we can open schools safely according to the data we have. And I think that that's important to point out.
2: It's difficult to like really make sense of of all of that data. I, I do agree. It does seem to be that that particularly for younger kids, right? That seems to be the conclusion. The risk is not zero, But it doesn't seem to be like driving the pandemic. And of course, you know, we put our kids in cars all the time and the risk is not zero, right? Like we have to think about, you know, what are the, like to a certain extent, there's some trade-offs, right? And the other thing is that it also, a lot of it also hinges on how much virus is circulating in the community, right? So it's a different conversation in a place like Manitoba, where, you know, the rates are very low versus Arizona, where things are spiraling out of control, it seems. And that also speaks to, you know, what are we prioritizing when we're thinking about how we're reopening the economy, you know? So being more lax in some areas that are probably higher risk, you know, bars, right? People get drunk, they dance, they get close to each other, you know? Like what's the economic impact of opening bars and allowing that potential context for risk transmission, if it means that we risk having higher rates in the community, which makes it more dangerous to open schools, which I would argue would likely have a much more negative economic impact if we can't do that safely. So thinking about, okay, well, we don't want to hurt the bars. <laughs> you know, it's important that we allow those Let's to, the you kids. know, <laughs> we allow those to survive. But, you know, downstream, okay, it makes it harder to open, you know, to open the schools full time. I mean, that seems like a very short-sighted, decision, right? So I, you know, I mean, like, I'm not a public health expert. I'm not an epidemiologist. These are really difficult choices. But I know what choices I would make.
1: Thank you so much today for joining us. And where can people follow you on Twitter? Or where can, where else can they find your work? I'm Sylvia
2: A. Fuller on Twitter. So certainly you could you can follow me there. And uh, I will be, you know, keeping an eye on this data as things unfold. Thank you so much for joining us
1: today. All right. Thanks for having me. And now it's time to open up the mailbag, all the cards and letters that came pouring in and the children's drawings. Today's question comes from Matthew Cormier on Twitter. You are running for PM in 2023. What is your campaign slogan, Jen?
0: I guess I'm the last one left. (laughs) Turn out the lights before you leave. Like, like it's no, I don't know. No, here's my campaign slogan. It's come to this. That's my slogan. It's come to this. My
1: campaign slogan is one bad apple doesn't
0: spoil the whole bunch. Okay, but that's that that just invites questioning now. Like, who are the bad apples you're referring to? Well, this is called listener engagement. Okay. That's a good question, though. I like it. I like it. Well, if you have a question that you want us to answer on the show, preferably something fun and light and not, like, electoral reform, you can tweet us at oppocast or send us an email at oppo at And congratulations to Matthew Cormier, who made it onto our mailbag this week. Do we have anything to give, Matthew? We should get, like, socks made or something, like some oppo socks. You have to knit them, Jen. You can send
1: him some of your potatoes. I'll send him some potatoes. Potatoes for Matthew.
0: Well, that's it for Oppo this week. We'll be back again in two weeks. Once again, the ways to get in touch are at oppo at CanadaLandShow.com or on Twitter at OppoCast.
1: This episode was produced by David Crosby. We're looking at David right now in the Zoom window. We can see him. And our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Theme music by Nathan Burley.